Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. You know, people play different roles in business. Some focus on the big picture, some the next big thing, and others just love their crazy ideas. But some like to get down into the nitty gritty. They operate on a granular level, fixing problems, optimizing, and evaluating. And this pretty much sums up my next guest, whose name is Kurt Erlier. Kurt has executed over 60 transactions throughout his career. He's built and run businesses from startup to over 500 million in annual revenue and assembled teams across six continents. His ability to identify opportunities that others miss and scale at impressive rates is really quite uncanny. Kurt calls himself a scaler, and during our discussion, we covered a wide range of topics that I know will resonate with you all, including his thoughts on how to grow a business fast, also what he looks for when he's recruiting people, what he values as a business owner, and we also chatted about how the acquisition landscape is evolving, you know, the value of closing smaller deals, and the unexpected reasons why deals can fall over. But that's just scratching the surface. Get ready for some practical advice and actionable takeaways the things we truly appreciate in the Buy, Grow, Sell community. This is Kurt Earlier. Hello, Kurt. Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Simon. My pleasure indeed. Appreciate you making the time. You know, I've, I've had a lot of guests on this show, Kurt. It's, um, you know, we've seen such a, ra- a range of guests, you know, people who've sort of started grown, sold, got back on that merry-go-round, did it again, did it for themselves, did it for other people. And, and, and that's kind of what I loved about you when I was having a look at your, your profile is that you, you've come at this from multiple angles. You know, you've done it yourself, you've worked with others, you've bought, you've sold, you've grown. <laughs> so it sounds like you're the perfect guest for this podcast. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I hope so. For nothing else, I, I, love, I love what you're trying to do with the podcast about share those stories for others. I mean, I like to tell people that I'm mentoring, I'm like, I've failed so many times, most people would crawl under a table and die. And it's like, you know, <laughs> if anything, if we can share just one or two stories that help somebody not have to go through some of those like turmoils, like that, that's life-changing for them and their families. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Maybe we could kick off, like what, what got you into, like what was your first sort of earliest memories of being an entrepreneur or sort of leaning into entrepreneurialism? Like was there, was there any sort of sparking moment, some motivation, anything like that? The sparking motivation was actually, I, I was pro- actually nine or 10 and my dad worked for Bell Labs or what, what Bell came out of Bell Labs, the, eight, the apple of the day. And um, he took me in and I solved some math problems and uh, I got this check and um, we got to go to the store and, and, and do buy anything that I wanted. I'm like, I still remember like, why, why am I being able to go to like Toys R Us in the day and buy anything I want? He was like, because you solved something that others haven't been able to. And if we would pay a consultant for this, I, we should pay you. And so he did that for me. And I was like, wait a second, if you solve problems, people give you money. And <laughs> I didn't, 
I didn't, I mean, you have no concept of what that really means, but I mean, that's my first kind of like real seed. But, um, but then I, I mean, I got thrust into entrepreneurship when I was 14, had to form two LLCs because I was going to have to file so many taxes in the States because I had friends working for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, I, I love that. You, you're not old enough to drink. You're not old <laughs> enough to drive, but you're old enough to have a company, employ people and pay taxes. <laughs> yes. Oh, the government wants their share. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that's cool. So um, I know you've been involved in a few different sort of ventures there. It's, um, you know, it, uh, I was seeing actually your profile. Um, was it Clear Vision? What, tell us a little bit about that business. Yeah, I mean, that was actually just like a, a, web, a you know, glorified web hosting company that I built up because, I mean, when the internet was starting, I was really good at sales. And so if you can do sales and operations, you can just print money. And so I was yes. working on a master's degree and like literally once you get one client in a small town, uh, college town, I was able to just go to accountants and lawyers and back and forth and be like, hey, I just I just sold them a website. You need to be online. And um, hosting goes along with that. Maintenance goes along with it. And um, very quickly, I ended up realizing I, this is not something I really want to do. So I ended up basically just outsourcing the hosting bit of it, which later ended up being a, uh, being the place I ended up selling that company to. Um, for all the hosting and maintenance for it. Did not even think about that at the time. So looking back, I got an okay deal, but I wasn't planning for it. It kind of just fell into my lap. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. It's it's, it's such a, uh, I'm always curious about, um, you know, A, how people get into businesses, but then over time, like our, our perceptions evolve, right? Like you, you've done startups, you've done that side of things, but as as, you know, we know you've done a lot of transactions as well. If you were to go back in time to your young sort of teenage self who's thinking about getting into business and you had all the options open, would you would you tell them to look at startups? Would you tell them to try to buy a business? Like if you're starting again, what, 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 do you have a view on buy versus build? I, th I think it really depends on the person. For me personally, if I could go back and tell myself something, it would be do not start like – the startup on the like the more brick and mortar, the the you know selling those websites that was actually easy. Doing the technology startups was really hard for me. I raised a bunch of money, I put things in, um, but it was actually one of my mentors who's now passed, Reggie Bradford, who helped counsel me through. Um, he was mentoring me, and I'm like, I'm just miserable. Like we're making good money, um, recurring revenue, and technology is always great. And I'm like, why am I so painful? And he was like, because you're a scaler. This zero to one crap. The, you know, it's people are really good at that and love it. He was like, but Kurt, you're the guy that comes in and takes something that's 10 million, 100 million and 100 X's it. That's what you like doing. That's what you're good at. He was like finding product market fit early on that with no customers. He was like, I'm watching you. I, I hurt for you. And he actually counseled me out of getting out of it. And so if I could go back and tell myself that it would have been like, look, some people love startups. It's the fun thing to do. College dropout, go do it. But like, no, like. That's good for some people. It wasn't good for me. And I didn't know myself well enough. I was looking for pride, being like, I want to be that founder that started the $100 million company. And instead, that's just not what I'm good at. I'm that operator scaler. Yeah. I think that's a really great insight there is having having enough kind of emotional intelligence to know your strengths, know your weaknesses, know what you're good at and what you're not necessarily good at. It's it's, it's a funny one. And I've I've seen this Lots of times the other way around where I've met the guy who or girl who was fabulous at whatever it was they did 
and they would build the business to a certain point and then just find themselves butting their head on the ceiling and they just didn't know how to push through to that next level. And, you know, I've, I've had a number of times in my, my life, my career running Exit Advisory Group where on occasions you get the founder with that much emotional intelligence who says, Simon, I'm actually at the limit of my capabilities. I, I, I'm not the guy to take this company to the next level. It's huge opportunity. I just, that's just not my skill set. And, you know, I think it's, it takes, yeah, it takes a lot of humility to be able to put your hand up and actually say, my business could probably do better in somebody else's hands or with somebody else at the helm. Yeah, no, I mean, sometimes sometimes we can get coaching, and I think that'll move us through it. But but it, it for me, I I'm a big per, a big believer in making sure that what I'm doing uh, suits me and suits my family long term. And so even if it's painful, and I could get coaching through it, is that the best use of my time and my resources? Like I've been stewarded yeah. not just money but time and skills. And it's like all of those things matter. And so yeah, maybe I could get coaching to go through this certain place. But it's it's not what I'm good at, as opposed to you give me something that 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 I can scale. And I mean, man, my 10 hours a week may be more or valuable than somebody's 100 hours a week. And so putting in that 40, 50 hours, it's just a, it's 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 a completely different scale for them. And some cases you can coach that some cases you can't. Like I don't, I've been also been told by some people um, that it's like there's this muscle memory you get from hyper growth. I think there's the same muscle memory you get from having found that initial product market fit and getting to that million dollars, $5 million of recurring revenue, that they're different you know, muscle memories and it's hard to work between those two sometimes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I do like the question though, hey, I probably could learn that, but should I? You know, Is that actually the smartest use of myself and my, my resource? So it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, my, my wife and I, we've been married uh, about 10 years now, almost 11. And so we've been really big on, um, I've always been big on stewarding my money. And a lot of us kind of do think that way. Where should we give and donate and things? But I had a mentor that came alongside me and was like, yeah, yeah, money's good. But a, but a $100,000 check from this person or you is still $100,000. Your time is completely different. And he was like, so it was like, should you be going and digging ditches, you know, in a third world country? Maybe if that's where your heart calls you for something, he was like, but but the same amount, the same week you could do doing that, if you donated it to something more knowledge work with the same entity, what would that do for them? And so my wife and I, we fail at this, but we try we try to do look backs and we plan forward about how do we steward our time and our skills the same way that we do our our, our the money that we've been given. Yeah, I think that's a great approach. Yeah. It applies to business as much as it does off hours. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean you gotta use uh... It's, it's, it's an interesting one. I was talking to my son the other day about business and, um, you know, you tapped on this at the very beginning of this this uh, podcast, this, this episode was solve a problem, you can get paid. Um, and, and I was extrapolating that a little further for my son and saying how, you know, fundamentally business is actually about allocation of resources. How do you solve problems with limited resources? Because you can't solve every problem yourself. Um, and so, you know, how do you go about doing this and where is it smart to have other people involved with you? And um, for what it's worth, my, my two sons, they're 14 and 16, they have a little mini power washing business. So they go around, one son is is the extrovert, he cold calls and knocks on the doors. My other son's really technical and really good at doing the work and the detail. And so, you know, they come back here and they're at, at 16 and 14 and they're making sort of 35, 40 bucks an hour. Um, and their yeah. mates who go and work in their local chicken shop are making sort of 10 bucks an hour. And they're like, why don't you come and get a job? And they're like, well, hang on, <laughs> I 
I make a lot more over here. <laughs> so, but but just talking about how to solve that. My, now my youngest son is even talking about it. Maybe, Dad, maybe I should get some of my friends to come and work for me. I'm like, oh yeah, here we go. <laughs> so. Yeah. Anyway, that, that was part of the business I sold. The first business I sold when I went to college was I started with lawn, uh, with, with lawn care, and then what do you do as bolt-on services? I realized I could add on power washing, pressure yeah, washing. Yeah, totally. Right. But but it was the same. It was the same thing. And so I went to my friends and was like, "Look, like I can. Pay, what are you earning down at McDonald's, or what are you earning somewhere else?" And I'm like, "I, I can double that right now. I'll pay for the next week." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. <laughs> um. You know, I'm interested to unpack some of your experience here. Um, you know, we've had a lot of founders and, you know, you obviously you've been a founder yourself. But this, this, um, and so I guess well, we've had a lot of this talk of how do we start something and, and build it to a point where it's saleable. But we do get a lot of people, listeners, even people in my world who are really fascinated with this, as you put it, sort of that how do I take it from the 10 million and really 10x this thing? How do we, how do we scale at, at, a, at a really huge level? And, and I'm curious to get your sort of thoughts around this because you've been involved around it enough. But like, are there are there some key elements that you see a business must just must have? They're the critical ingredients to scale from X to Y. Yeah, I I, I mean, I think one of the main things it is it's a it's a mentality, it's a way of thinking, and so it you don't have to always have the the like I, I'm I'm not a big fan of you know formal uh, formal training uh, training and education. I mean, college, university are, are great, but but I do find um, software engineers, mechanical engineers, applied mathematicians, uh, trained lawyers that don't want to be a lawyer. It's the level, it's the type of granular thinking that all of those disciplines have at a formal education. That I, I find that's actually you don't have to be trained that way, but that's what the business has to have: one or two senior senior leaders. It doesn't always have to be the top person. I'm a big fan of that big visionary mad scientist up top, but the person running things has to have that level of being able to um, be kind of, you know, a jack of all trades. Um, you know, there, there's a, a book out there now called Range where it's like, hey, you don't just focus on one thing. You need to be good at a whole bunch of things, but it's that way to be able to granular uh, things. I mean, I've been really good at marketing and sales, not because I'm creative and coming up with new ideas. I steal people's ideas or take an idea from somebody on the team. But I can apply it because I've been a software engineer. I've been that hacker that's gone out and done things. And that's that's the level of thinking that it takes, the type of thinking. So you can coach through that a lot of times. But you, ha- if you don't have that yourself, if you're that mad scientist, um, I, you know, the EOS, the entrepreneur operating system, it's defined for that founder who says, look, you've got to that million dollars, five million dollars, but you don't think in processes. You're always hot for the next thing. You need to go get that man or woman that 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 can actually run the daily shop. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's an interesting one. At um, one of the things we talk a lot about in our team is, you know, when we're hiring, what are some of the attributes that you want? Because you don't have to be a CEO or a COO or one of these senior people to, you know, they don't have a monopoly on good thinking and great ideas, right? Like they, anybody can can learn to think like this, or some, for some people it comes naturally, but we boil down so much of what we do, um, you know, when we're recruiting. Say, well, what are the the absolute couple of one or two or you know, few attributes that we we really really value? And as a team, the one thing that we actually came down to was curiosity of mind. So you, you're curious. You you want to know how things work. You want to know, you know, 
curiosity leads you to thinking about things in different ways. So curiosity was the first thing, but then enough initiative, motivation, ambition, whatever you want to call it, to actually do something about it, right? To go and explore yeah. it. And it's I, I, I kind of hear that message resonating almost in what you're saying here, that you've, you've got to be able to think laterally and know how to hustle and make things move. Yeah, no, I, and I agree with you on everything you said. I mean, I have some of those things written out there and they're they're on my website. They're in every company I work for. Like buy that last one you mentioned. For me, I, I verbalize that as bias towards action. Like, hey, if there's a problem, you're not going to wait to run it by me. If anything, you'd rather make the wrong decision than wait an extra day or two in some cases. Because like, that's one of the things I look for. Uh, another one I would add to that list is, um, and it, it comes up in the first interview for anybody I have is uh, anybody we're hiring. Um, are they okay with healthy conflict? Today, so many people are scared of conflict. There's toxic conflict, but I would much rather have somebody that would bring up a problem when it's small or early. My wife and I talk about it pre-fighting. Hey, let's talk about the, this subject now when, when our, son, you know, our, our son's four and not when he's 12 so that we can work towards something and we've already made the decision beforehand. And so I think that applies for work as well, but it's, it's healthy conflict. And it's like, people need to be able to like, also ask, like some people know what that means. I'm really okay if people have to ask and then they either self-select out or they go, oh, that's awesome. I would love to work in that environment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Being, being willing to actually engage and have that conversation before you're in the heat of the moment and the emotions are flying and it's, you know, you, <laughs> people have already shut off the logical part of their brain, right? <laughs> yeah. And I don't always get that right. I mean, I, but, you know, I had an issue like uh, towards in Q3 last year where I had a peer of mine um, where I had not addressed something for a couple of months and it just kept bubbling up. And finally, like, I was that person that was just like this and I didn't realize it. And I'm like, I had to go back to him. I'm like, I've I've been kind of leaking out toxicity without meaning to. This was why I'd like, can we come back and resolve that and kind of kind of redo a couple of those conversations we had? But all of those points you mentioned, it matters for scaling, and you're right for people that are trying to figure out how to get that next level. But I don't think most people realize that it matters for sale. I mean, there are yeah. times where people are just doing an asset uh, asset purchase, and then they're wanting whatever book of business you have or the technology you have. But but in most cases, especially like even like where I've gone along with the companies and stuff, like the the best op the best acquisition I've ever done was actually the technology was great, but we were acquiring the leadership team. I joked later. It, ended, uh, it was a company called Traffic.com. It was about a hundred and seventy million dollar acquisition in like two thousand and six. Uh, we kind of joked later that Chris Rothy and his team actually acquired us in a way. Like we had this huge part of the business that was data, but after about two years, Chris and his team ended up running pretty much all software, all APIs, anything that wasn't pure data in the company. And it's because like some of us saw by wanting to put together that deal, they were as valuable as the technology was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. You know, talking about acquisitions, you know, you've, you've obviously done a lot of acquisitions. What does that look like for you guys? Talk, can you talk us through it? I mean, I, and, and the reason I'm interested in this is, is I st I'm starting to see more and more this concept of growth via acquisition is no longer just the playground of the large corporates and the big PE firms. It actually seems to be going downstream into the not just even the lower, the, you know, now we're into the lower middle market, not just the mid market, right? Where people are starting to say, well, hang on a minute, this is this is a smart way for me to potentially grow. So 
Can you talk us through a little bit around, you know, some of the acquisitions you've done? I mean, what do you look for in a good acquisition? Um, I mean, opportunity and price are, I mean, are clearly some of the big things. I mean, I, <laughs> I literally have an email yep. to respond to right now on, on two potential leads to, to some deals that a friend has sent me. And uh, she's like, hey, these two things are on the, on the, um, are on the block or will be if you're interested. Um, yep. And I mean, but but that's becoming from relationships there. And so some cases it is opportunity where you mentioned sometimes somebody's going, oh, shit, I want out. Um, but other cases, like at least in one of these, I, I, I do know I do know the company that they're at that inflection point where they just they can't get past it. And they know to, to get to the vision that they're wanting to, they need a certain type of home. And so that, that that's why they kind of step forward on that. And so. Um, and you know, I'm, I may know a couple of those uh, places to place them. Um, that's often where I'm kind of seeing is like you said, like some cases I'm looking for something. I'm I'm almost never doing an asset sale myself. It's got to be something that's going to have that huge growth. But you're right on the on the downsizing. I know a really senior marketing executive that just left a great job and bought a, a operating franchise in California, like a baller of an executive, and is going down the other direction. And it's like, I'm seeing a lot more of that nowadays. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I had a, uh, a guest on the show yesterday who is doing mi microtransactions. You know, we're talking five to six figure deals. You know, the lowest is sort of about 50K up to a couple of hundred K. And she's just buying small little e-com businesses and bolting them together and then cross-pollinating them. And, you know, for somebody who lives in a, you know, the Southern Island of New Zealand and has a wonderful life. And she just goes, look, I, I can make seven figures a year and I don't have to work very hard. And I'm, you know, and the businesses pay themselves off. And it's, so it's getting right down into this kind of area of the market I'm seeing. But yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I think, I think people, particularly after COVID, a lot of people are questioning their life and where they're going and what they're doing and how they spend their time. And hey, is there a better way than the traditional route of just being an employee so i think i think that's been fascinating yeah i mean i i think a lot of at least what i'm seeing in, in some of my peer group are you know like I, i'm not sure there's a dollar figure that would make me go back into an office like i love people i want to hang around people i could probably go into an office one or two days a week but it's like we have a mountain property and i love my wife like i got to see my kids like them three or four breaks today um and so i think a lot of people are looking at that like hey yeah yeah having the multi-hundred million dollar exit would be nice but if I can clear seven figures a day or sorry, seven figures a year, like, and I can work from home or work from wherever, like that's good, not just for me, but especially on the other side of like, I'm a big believer of like, I'm not just a steward of my family, but the people that I employ and work with me. And so like, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to do for everybody what I can do for one or 12. Um, but running a small arena, you know, running an e-com business, bolting things together allows you to change certain people's lives. And great, maybe you're not employing 20,000 people. Okay, you've changed 20 people's lives and you have the type of life that you and your family want. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, regular listeners to this show will, will, will have heard me say this many, many times, but I'm, I'm one of these people that doesn't, I, I don't believe we're born to do business. <laughs> you're, you're born to live your life. And really, you should structure your business to deliver on whatever that kind of life is that you want. So, you know, really, when people talk to me about growing and exiting and all this sort of stuff, I'm always just sort of coming back to the personal side and saying, well, well, what's important to you? Like, how do you want to spend your time? Like, what, what do you actually want from this journey? 
And, you know, you can build businesses to do anything you like. But if you can't get clear on that part, well, you're probably going to end up in the wrong location. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, that's like, you know, I, I look back where it's like, you know, I've been on vacation and somebody sees me on, uh, you know, which is kind of rare because I have that lifestyle that you're talking about. And it's like, I was, I was up this morning at my laptop at 5.05 a.m. working on writing for my own site because I do enjoy writing and sharing what some of my stories and journey, but I love what I do from a work perspective. And so I also love hiking with my son um, or driving around with him on a skid steer. And so it's like, I will do those things, but like you, you couldn't convince me to go do, you know, a job that's, you know, not enjoyable now. Um, and so it's like, I'm a firm believer in like, I'm also not like a, Hey, just follow what you love to do. I mean, follow what you love to do that you'll get paid for because it allows you to do that lifestyle that we're talking about. I just happen to be really, I happen to really enjoy what I'm really good at, which is helping people grow businesses. Yep. Yep. No, that's cool. Let me circle back a minute to, to some of the acquisitions you've done. Um, you know, we're talking about what sort of makes a good deal and stuff like that. And I agree with you, you know, look, opportunity, price. But then again, there's there's lots of opportunities out there that aren't necessarily a fit. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you're a tech company. You're not going to go buy a landscaping business, right? So it, despite the fact that it makes great profits, I'm, I'm just curious, as a guy who's led deals and led that buy side transaction, do you typically have things that, you know, requirements in a deal, like, um they have to be over a certain size or they have to contribute a certain percentage to revenue or EBITDA or I don't know, like I guess there could be a hundred different metrics and different, maybe for all different buyers, but are there trends or things that you typically look for or need to meet as a, as a corporate buyer? At, at different companies, yes. Um, especially, so I was with a company called Navtech, became here technologies, like anything that uses map data, spatial data. We think about Google Maps, this company so much larger than that. Um, and so from a mapping perspective, and so we were typically looking for, we, we, we were the 800 pound gorilla. We, there was not a growth opportunity. We were looking for gaps in our product offering gaps in technology. So like traffic.com, we didn't have real time sourcing of stuff. They kind of gave us some of that. Um, so, you know, in that case, it wasn't an, you know, like EBITDA was just more of, Hey, were we not going to, to, to lose a large amount of money going into it? It had to fit something that was already on our roadmap, uh, an identified gap. Um, and a lot of times, like some of those opportunities that came through, I mean, a dozen of them that came through was because we had shared with peers things that were on our roadmap that we knew we weren't good at or we knew we needed to figure out. And so that others like you would have come to us and said, hey, you said you were looking for a company like this. I happen to have one now. Because there's no way, I think, as a on a corporate side, that you can go out and and, and source all the deals yourselves. It comes from relationships, um, and it comes from exposing a little transparently. Here's what we're trying to figure out. At least where where, where I've been, um, I, we did, we've done a couple of acquisitions. I was at a company we sold to Oracle, social media management. Um, in that case, it, we I did a small deal that was you know a million dollar kind of acquisition price because we were looking for growth opportunities. You have a product that I can go sell to all of my customers. Let's let's do this deal as quickly as we can. Um, and, and and so you know in that case, but that was much more of almost an asset sale at that point. So yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That um, sounds a little bit like uh, Rod Drury, who's the founder of Zero, the accounting software. You know, he his first company was Aftermail. You know, big mail archiving business. You know, the, uh, solution sold it to two Fortune 500 companies and then basically sold it to somebody else and said, well, look, you've got the other 498 Fortune 500 companies as clients. Why don't you just take this and roll it out? And, uh, you know, so I think he sold that. It was a 
2 million turnover company and he sold it for about 15 mil. And then that's the money that went into starting zero and building that. So, which I think at latest measurements is a oh, billions and billions and billions of, I think it was 80 bill or something crazy. Anyway, it's huge. <laughs> but I, but I love that, that idea. And I think just to pick up on what you were saying there about understanding a the problem in your own kind of business or the gap that you're trying to solve. Is there an opportunity, do you think, here for entrepreneurs who are out there, maybe with the smaller business, to kind of try to reverse engineer that and say, well, look, if I really want to build a company for value and build it for a big exit, how do I find out what problems my these bigger companies are having? How do I build to solve problems? Like, do, is, that, is that possible, do you think? I think it. I think it is. It also goes to that being kind of humbleness of what are you building. I, I find too many small, especially technology companies, they're they're trying to build a business on what's really a feature versus a problem. Yep. Like that. Like there's not a there's not a re, there's not an, a long term opportunity for you there. Somebody's going to squash you in that. That's different than finding something that's a problem for the same type of customer and then going out and selling. Um, the company I mentioned was named Vitry that we ended up selling to Oracle. Um, we before you know when we were raising our next round that ended up become, turning into a sale we, we had not intended uh, it to be at that time they'd raise we'd raise about thirty two million dollars we were starting we knew a problem we had that was social media management when it started there was two, Hootsuite which most of us have used something like that and two big enterprise players and we were one of those so what what did the CEO and I do. We're flying out to Utah where Adobe was based for all their digital products, figuring out what the strategic deal was with for them because they had Adobe Analytics and all those ad platform and they had nothing that was useful in social. They had had a failed acquisition. So we were starting at that point. Now, now we're a bigger company um, having, ra having raised you know 30 plus million, but we, were, we weren't scared to reach out to companies because we knew they were having the build versus buy discussions already. So we might as well start talking with them and Salesforce and end up being Oracle and be like, hey, how can we work together to do some cross-selling now? Hey, we might be raising a little money. Do you want to kind of come into that? Because that we all know that when you start to bring on a strategic like that, it's so that they can make sure that they're buying a seat at the table when 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 there's actually a game to be played. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you, you mentioned like challenges and deals, but it, uh, I'm I'm curious with all the acquisitions you've done, you you must have been involved in or seen deals that haven't gone through for whatever reason. And you know, I I've been on the sell side quite often. I'm always saying to clients. Oh, they, they get excited. Oh, we had an offer. I'm like, seriously, the work hasn't started yet. <laughs> right. The work starts when we get into due diligence and we're going to pull everything apart. And, you know, as I keep saying, everything comes out in due diligence. If you've got skeletons, you need to tell me. But um, I'm just curious, like, have you seen deals fail in your journey? And, and have there been any kind of trends or obvious, you know, reasons why these sort of things tend to, to fail or not go through? Yeah, I mean... I, I have a couple. I mean, I have a couple stories where it's like we won't. We don't have to get into the details, but we're to your point. Like, hey, a deal is not done until not even have things been signed, but things have been signed and money transferred. I mean, I've seen them all break apart, like at both of those places before. But that those are you. Those are those have, from my experience, have been unexpected. Something has come up that's you know um, a black swan kind of event for one of the companies. Usually, um, it, it often is to your point about either skeletons that came out or something that wasn't a skeleton, but it was held back. And so 
um, rather than being transparent, brought to the deal. I'm a big fan of, hey, if you know something's going to come up, if you know there's going to be a problem in a, or a potential problem, you should raise it on the table and bring it up as quickly as, po- as quickly as possible. Because when it's later, it's going to feel weightier when people feel like they're pot committed to the deal. And then they find out, hey, we might lose the bi- this big customer. Look, there was no way you were going to get past that if you lost the customer or not. Bring it up ahead of time. You can build it in contingencies and people can decide early on. And then it's not a big deal. Like things like that happen all the time. I just find founders are so concerned sometimes about like sharing some of their cards. And it's like, look, these things are all going to come out. And so unless you're selling the company and stepping away, which is very rare with earnouts, but much less, especially if you're joining the things, these are going to be your new coworkers. Like, do you want to set a foundation where they feel like they can't trust you because something came out, even though it wasn't a big deal, they would have been like, well, why didn't you tell me that Simon? Like we could have worked through that. And, and people just are scared. And I mean, I get through that as myself as well. I mean, little, I sent a text yesterday to a friend and I'm like, not, not being scared, but I'm more like, I'm going through this and I shouldn't. And he just kind of wrote back and he was like, dude, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Like it's a mind game for you. So I think sometimes it is having a you, uh, somebody like you that's alongside to be able to say, tell me about the skeletons. Tell me what you're most scared of in this deal. And I'll help you, co- I'll coach you through whether or not, in not what even when, but uh, how we bring out the deal. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think you're right. Yeah. And, and I, I, the other kind of nuance that I've seen to this, which is, which is interesting, is um, sometimes I find that founders don't, understand the perceived risk in their business it's i liken it a little bit to um to flying actually like if you're going to get on a plane and you are terrified of flying yeah it doesn't really matter what anybody says to you you're going to be scared of that trip you're going to perceive risk on that flight far differently than say the pilot who's up the front (laughs) yeah um now the actual risk from a impartial perspective is absolutely the same for both people (laughs) but you know, I'm, I'm, I think with founders and business owners who've been around particularly a long time, even if they acquired the business, you know, they've been running the company for 20 years, there'll be certain risks in their business that they just don't even see as an issue because it's never propped up. You know, we've never had a plane crash. It doesn't mean the plane can't crash, but it just, it's never happened. So I don't worry about that. And it's not really an issue. Whereas somebody new coming in goes, hang on a minute, like this, there is actual risk here. And you know, I think I think the the problem, and what I end up coaching a lot of people to is, don't gloss over that or be dismissive of that. Like you've got to listen to what they're saying, appreciate that they've got a fear of flying here, and and this is you know you need to catch this in different terms. And so, um, you know, once again, buyer and seller come together, build trust in a shorter period of time. Right? That means actually being open to listening and talking. And yeah, I. Well, and and having difficult conversations and, and understanding that yeah. not everybody's going to want to do a deal and that's okay. I mean, I, I stepped out of working with a company because I was advising the way that uh, the, the way that you do. And I found out that that one of the founders had actually written a, a, a say, a foundational amount of the code when he was still under an, an IP assignment from another large company. And he didn't let anybody else know that. And so when I found out, like, as soon as I, I like, I found, I heard a wind of it. I approached him that day and said, is this true? Because we need to have a chat and found out it was true. And I'm like, so here's your options. We, we can go to the, we can go back to the big company and, and, and get your release 
and it's probably going to cost you a lot of money. You you can sit on it and run the gambit, but I'm out at that point. Like this is yeah. an ethical issue at this point. And you, either way, you're going to true up to your investors that have come up because they need to know what what's now happening with their money. And most of the investors decided to say they run the gamble that nobody would find out about it. I just personally couldn't do that. I said, that's fine. So, I mean, I did my part of coaching through, this has to come transparent enough for the other people that have equity to decide what they want to do. I just can't be a part of that decision if y'all choose to make it. And, and so they did. And I don't fault, I mean, I don't fault them for making their decision. It's just not a decision that ethically I could be part of. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about, I guess, sort of deal structure and sort of transitions. I think I think for a lot of business owners out there, they, when they think about exiting, once again, I mean, they run the race and think that they've almost done when they've got an offer. It's, it's, it's like I've had people ring me up and say, oh, look, I've, I've got an offer on the table. Like, you know, you should cut your fees in half or to a quarter because, you know, we've already got a buyer. I'm like, oh, my goodness, you've, you've, you've done like 0.01% of the work. You've just happened to fall into somebody's giving you an offer. The work, you know, there's so much more involved. And you extrapolate this sense of where is the finish line. And, and I think a lot of business owners then struggle with the idea of having to hang around after the deal, having an earn out, um, having to culturally fit into other companies, having a boss <laughs> all right. of a sudden. And so I guess I'm just curious in your experience, have you seen earn outs in deals? Have they often worked? Have they often failed? You know, What's it like for a lot of business owners that you see having to go through this transition and integration period? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's more rare. For, I mean, I'd be surprised if I see a third of the earnouts actually like hit anywhere, anywhere at ninety percent to one hundred percent of what they could be. Um, yeah, and, and, wow. um, I maybe end up seeing a third of the earnouts that that end up paying out virtually nothing um, of the earnout amount, um, and it's usually because the founder, to your point. They didn't deal culturally. They didn't either set things up to hand it off the, the reins to somebody else or they did or, hey, I sold. And while they're technically at the job, they're they're not running the business anymore. And that's on them. Um, and, and then, you know, there, there's that kind of other third that's that, that's in the middle. Like they do. They do pretty well. They maybe pay out 50 to 70 percent. Um, it's just to your point, like it often even sometimes they fail, but it's like. The ones that do really well, they had somebody, they either have done deals themselves or they had an expert, some an advisor who has walked through a bunch of deals to, to help them set up things to be successful. Some cases actually in the deal terms, other cases it's just mentally that it's like, all right, what's next for you? Like we ended up, uh, when uh, one of our, com uh, the company, we ended up selling to Nokia, massive exit from a public company being sold. I was kind of unfireable. And so I, I, I literally just stopped showing up to the office for like 60 days. I took like a giant multi-hundred million dollar renewal call from like while bass fishing in Alabama. And um, <laughs> I was just bored out of my, I ended up being bored out of my mind. But like I had somebody who said, look, the only way you're going to be happy on the other side is if you just completely uncheck for as long as as long as they will let you. And so I ended up showing back up in the office at like day 61 or 62 and people were surprised. Because on the acquirer side, they were like, like, we figured you were gone for like 90 to 100 days, like easy to kind of redo that. But we knew your mentality, you would come back. And frankly, yeah. there was money on the table. 
So, um, <laughs> but but, yeah. but that was part of the kind of coaching through. Like, what did I need after that massive rush? I needed like a two month holiday to to go through like the emotional like letting go, and then frankly, which was only maybe thirty days, and I needed about another twenty to get bored. Yes. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. It's it's actually a common experience I've heard from a lot of a lot of founders too. They they all of a sudden more money in their accounts that they've ever had. They take some time off, but I, I like this this concept of you know I'm doing stuff, but at some point that getting bored is ultimately a driver for them to get back. And you know they've always been a produ- a producer. You know somebody who's adding value and. I think I actually think there's value in getting bored. By the way, there's there's studies around yep. the, what happens to your brain when you get bored and how it actually ignites other things and changes the way you think about stuff. So it's it's kind of interesting. But um, yeah, I mean, I I love hiking, but if you told me I had to go hiking every day for the next thousand days, <laughs> that might be a little bit different type of thing. So <laughs> for sure. For sure. Hey, I'm just curious. It might be a little bit of an offbeat question here, but I'm um, obviously you're stateside. I'm in Australia. I'm, I'm curious with the companies that you've represented and the transactions you've done. H- have you ever done any transactions that were sort of cross-border or, or outside of the US? I'm going to say outside of Canada too, because that's just a little too close and too easy. But um, have you have you had to do any sort of offshore transactions? Uh, only on the buy side. So, like, we bought a company called Mapsalute out of Germany. Um, and so, you know, we were already an international company. We, we did a couple like that. We, uh, we ended up buying our way into, uh, uh, buying our way into the uh, South Korean market as well, had to do a joint venture in China. Um, so I've done a, a, a couple of those and, and they're all very different as well, I find, and for, di- for a whole bunch of reasons. So, Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I, I'm always curious with it because it's, I find, um, there can be additional complexities, right? There's different laws. There's the tyranny of distance and time zones and all those sort of obvious things that um, that people think about. But um, I, I've had to kind of coach a lot of my clients because they'll say, oh, hey, this company in the US would be a great buyer of us. They will love what we do. And when I kind of take a look at things, like sometimes they're right. Sometimes you go, yeah, look, they're, they're global. They've got all this stuff going on. There's a good fit. But other times it's like, yeah, look, you, you might do something similar to them, but they don't operate outside of the US. They don't have all these sort of other characteristics, which you go, look, for me to try to convince these people to suddenly open up and have an international strategy, we're never going to change their strategy for them. <laughs> so there's, I, I think sometimes... I see huge opportunities in international expansion and transactions, but I also think people sometimes misunderstand some of the moving pieces and some of the complexity. Yeah, I mean, there is, there's a huge step for, I mean, I've, I've had the blessing of already been at the international company. So when we're going and acquiring, like we already have offices set up in every country in Europe. And so more, it's like, who are you going to report to type of thing, just structurally? Like that's easier. As opposed to, you know, now my day job is with a large international real estate company with a big technology presence, like going into other countries where they're in 20 plus countries. That's a decision for every country that goes into because that's setting up a new, it's really setting up a new company for each one of those. And so um, I think you're right. I mean, there's a huge opportunity, but also if that, if the aqu- potential acquirer does not already have, I, not even just an international, an international presence, at least in your region. Like, yes. you know, work, working in the Middle East, entirely different than working in Oceania. 
And so, um, you know, our when we were at this public company, they had this bright idea. We needed, we had so many company uh, customers uh, throughout Asia and uh, Oceania. They're like, we need to have a, a headquarters in the region. So they decided without asking any of us that had spent a lot of time, they, um, they bought space in an, uh, in an office building in Singapore, which is six to seven hours from everywhere. <laughs> so yep. great yep. office, love the people that are there. It didn't help any of the travel issues, any of the, the relationships that they were really wanting because great, instead of having a 14 hour flight, you have a six to seven hour flight. And, and like the board afterwards, they were like, why didn't anybody tell us? Because you didn't ask. Yeah. Yeah. Communication. There we go again. <laughs> uh, cool. Um, it's interesting. I, I just got back from the US um, on Sunday, so a couple of days ago, and I was at a couple of conferences all around mergers, acquisitions, that sort of stuff. And um, there was um, a, a part of one of the conferences where they call it the sort of deal market, where there was a lot of private equity guys set up so that intermediaries like me could go and talk to them, introduce ourselves, what kind of stuff do you guys like to buy? This is the sort of stuff we sell. Have we got a, some, a deal potentially or should we just stay in touch? You know, all that sort of good stuff is, you know, wonderful networking opportunities. And um, being in Australia, of course, I was uh, constantly asking people, do you do cross-border transactions? You know, have you, you know, and, and half of them pick up and go, are you from Australia? Okay, we understand Australia or no, look, we don't buy businesses in your region, which is fine. But one thing that actually sort of jumped out at me, well, two things actually. One was the number of investment firms who said, yeah, we'll deal, deal in Australia. In fact, we're working on a deal right now. I'm like, oh, wow, okay. So you are actually active in this space. So that, that surprised me that so many of them were, were looking at our region. Um, now, don't get me wrong, Australia language-wise is brilliant, culturally very good fit with the US. Um, you know, time zone is terrible, but hey, the dollar's good too. So, you know, it can make some good buying. But um, but I was surprised that how many of them were doing deals down here. The the other um, aspect of it was the deal size. You know, traditionally, if I went back even even five or six years ago, I found that for somebody to come and look at a deal in the in Australia, it had to be bigger for them to want to bother. And I, I had a lot of PE guys saying to me, hey, look, if it's a platform investment, okay, kind of two mil EBIT is kind of really the minimum size we'd want to look at. But hey, if we're already in that space, we'll look at anything down as low as sort of half a mil in EBIT. And I was like, okay, well, like, wow, that's really far. It's a different, it's a different narrative than what I think we've traditionally had. And I, I yeah, I'm just finding that that landscape changing is really, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, at least from my experience, that uh, tends to always happen when when the economy is slower, like we're seeing, you know, kind of across the world is, um, and it's it's not it's not that people are looking for scraps. It's just they're 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 much more opportunistic because they're saying, look, I can still make a lot of money by bolting on a bunch of half a million dollar, you know, EBITDA deals, and so yeah. like, that's still good money, um, especially if you can take it and then scale it on the other side. Where when the market's hot, like really people are like, no, 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 like, like you don't have five million dollars dropping to the bottom line. Sorry, I'm not interested. Um, yeah, because yeah. That, you know the you know thing when things are plentiful, that's what people are looking for. And so I you know I I've always looked for those smaller deals because so many people pass them by. I mean, I'm happy when there is the investment available to go make the larger deals, but because 
I'm, I, I know that I'm a scaler. I'm part of a deal team. I'm never, I, at this point in my career, I'm not leading any deals myself, although sometimes because of relationships, people will come to me and I'll hand them off to the corp dev guys. Um, but I, I know I'm going to be part of taking that half a million dollar EBITDA business and blowing it out to saying, hey, how do we make that a five to, to you know, to $10 million EBITDA business in two years? I, I'm like, I know as long as there's investment there, like bring me those all day long because the only decision that I'm having is the same decision I'm having about a roadmap for anything technology inside is, hey, I have all these things I could build. What's the best ROI? Well, if we buy a, if we buy a smaller deal, it, it does mean I'm not going to have to build something internal, but that may be a much better ROI than other things that are on the plate. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really good. That's really good. Um, but I know we, we're sort of probably getting close to time here, and I, I've got a couple of last quick questions if I could. But um, I'm, I am interested, in, like for these sort of smaller companies who who do want to scale, might perhaps build for an exit, grow value in their companies. I mean, do you have any sort of high level tips? You know, what what you know, the top tip or your top three tips or something that you tell business owners to think about as they're on that journey. Yeah, my, my first tip is if, if you, I mean, especially if, if you're the, the sole owner, you have a very small ownership group, uh, uh, group like you, if you do not have experience selling, um, I mean, there's a place when you're ready to sell, they need to have somebody like you. But before then to get ready to start getting the business worth something, to start thinking about that, like that's a time to bring on at least an advisory board that you give equity to somebody that has experience that have done the deals, but they have also have the experience of, helping your business get through the inflection point you're trying, because even if you don't sell, they're going to help you get through that inflection point. They're more than worth anything you give them. And then on the other side, hey, they're going to talk to you in a way that like the friends that have been around you on the journey so far aren't. And so I, in my experience, it makes then the conversation with somebody like you and your your uh, your team so much easier because you, you now at that point have 12 to 36 months of taking outside counsel from usually not just one, it should be like three to five people that you give a little bit of equity to some upside that's meaningful to them. And then you start, you start actually listening to them as somebody that you're paying because you are. Um, And it makes every other discussion so much easier. Plus a lot of us know homes for you perhaps. And so, you know, I tend to get very passionate. So like if I come in as an advisor, well, guess what? If I don't know your business directly, I'm going to end up just making friends in the space very quickly because I'm passionate about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so important, isn't it? Just that that intrinsic motivator and driver. It's um, yeah, that's cool. Um, my my last question. I'm going to defer it in a second just because I'll, I'll jump to it. But I, I'd like to understand your definition, your personal definition of success. You know, as a as a guy who's done a lot of different stuff in your life and obviously achieved great successes, and for yourself, for other people. Um, you know, I'm always sort of curious how our definitions and views on success evolve. Um, before before I get you to answer that, though, what's are you happy for people to reach out and connect with you? Like, what what's the best way for people to get in touch um, if they'd like to chat to you further? Yeah, I mean, if you want to see what I'm actually doing by day, I work for ExpRealty.com uh, or EXP Realty, and so that big international uh, real estate company. But I do a ton of writing. My personal website is KurtEuler.com. Um, I'm actually writing a lot and kind of leads in the next, uh, your, your question is like, I'm spending a lot of time writing about high achieving servant leadership, different styles, what I wish I would have known before. And so that's yes. the best way to reach out to me. Um, I love actually talking to people and they go, 
hey, you mentioned this and I disagree with it in an article, or you, you didn't cover these topics. What do you think about it? And it's like, that's actually what I was writing this morning was two articles based on questions like that from people. Yeah, nice, nice. Well, look, that's awesome. Well, look, I'm going to put some uh, some links in the show notes. Um, you know, it's clear to me that, you know, you can add so much value here to business owners who are looking to grow and achieve the type of success that you've seen in so many companies. So, um, you know, for those listening, you want to reach out, there'll be some links in the notes here. Um, Kurt, are you, are you on, you're on LinkedIn, right? Is it okay for people to reach out and connect there as well? Yeah, LinkedIn, LinkedIn's great as well. So, I mean, my, my, my definition of success is, I've, I've worked for so many toxic leaders before. I've been that toxic leader. I've made people, uh, you know, multimillionaires and some of them still won't return my phone call today. And so I'm really, at my, my definition of success is how do, I, how do I raise my family, but how do I multiply good, healthy servant leadership in others? And so every person that I can kind of help on that journey, I think makes the world a better place. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Kurt, thanks so much for making the time, buddy. It's been really lovely chatting to you and, uh, you know, you've been gracious in sharing your story and your tips and uh, I know that people will get a lot of value out of it. So um, so thanks for making the time to come on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Simon. Awesome. And thank you all for joining us again on the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and uh, please join us on the next episode, which will be coming out in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks for coming. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.